Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. The episode you're about to hear has been previously recorded with either a live or online audience and edited for length and clarity. To listen to the full conversation, simply go to our website at ttf.org. So whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. So today we have the fun of discussing one of history's best loved authors, best loved works. And we'll explore what could be called a novel approach to virtue that is gained by reading Jane Austen. Many of us first became acquainted with Jane Austen through the various film adaptations of Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, uh, and they make for great TV. I know that I spent many hours uh, in my 20s rewatching uh, again and again the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice with Girlfriends. But as delightful and entertaining as Austen's novels are, our guest today argues that they are works of not only literary brilliance, but also moral challenge and deep spiritual seriousness. And that Austen herself, through her works, serves as an instructor in virtue ethics, using satire to disarm our defenses against the revelation of our own foibles and flaws, and illustrating the virtues of humility and prudence and the balance of passion and reason. It is both a fascinating argument and an intriguing invitation to consider anew Jane Austen and her novels. And it's hard to imagine a better guide to such an exploration or one who approaches the subject with more expertise, enthusiasm, or elan than our guest today, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen is a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as a frequent writer on literature, culture, ethics, and ideas for publications like The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, First Things, and Christianity Today, among many other outlets. She's the author of several works, including Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, her wonderful book on reading well, finding the good life through the good books, as well as the introduction author of our latest Trinity Forum reading featuring selections from Pride and Prejudice and the creator of a forthcoming podcast series entitled Jane and Jesus, which examines the Christian themes of Austin's writing. Karen, welcome. Thank you, Sherry. It's so wonderful to be with you again after a year of hibernation. One of our first guests on this series, so it's great to have you back. So let's just start with the most obvious question, which is, you know, while Jane Austen's works are 
you know, much loved and much enjoyed, there are still those who seem to consider them the works of, you know, fluffy period pieces, bits of chick lit or, or the like. And I'll quote something that you've said here, which you said, nothing could be further from the truth. Jane Austen was a clever satirist, an insightful moral philosopher, and a deeply Christian thinker. So why do you consider Jane Austen to be a moral philosopher? Hmm. Well, first, I want to say I'm not alone in that in that understanding, no less than Alistair McIntyre, one of the foremost moral philosophers living today, actually calls Austin one of the last in the great tradition in the modern age of moral philosophers. He's right. And the, the reason that she is one, one of those is, well, first of all, she does write satire, which I know we'll, we'll talk about later. But satire is a moral correction. It kind of holds up our own vices and follies and gently or not so gently mocks them so that we might you know, see them and, and correct them. And even though Austen's novels are always about love and marriage and romance, whether it's romance that goes well or, or goes badly. That's really just the surface. Underneath the surface of that story, she is inviting us to look at our own interactions with one another, our own misperceptions and misreadings. And I think that's really why her works remain so endearing to us today, because she reveals the truths of, of our human condition that never change and that we're always wrestling with. So what would her moral philosophy consist of? I mean, it's always difficult to sum up a, a moral philosophy, but if right. you had to give it a shot, how would you do right. so? Right. So Austin writes in the tradition of virtue ethics. And so virtue classically understood is a moderation between an excess and a deficiency. So for example, just the, just the virtue that we call courage, to have too little of that quality would be cowardice, but to have too much of it would be rashness. And we often forget that that true virtue really does require having sort of that balance, that, that middle way, that moderation between two extremes. And almost every character, every situation, every even the titles themselves that Austin uses, especially Sense and Sensibility, display her attempt to show how easy it is for us to err on the side of either excess or deficiency to have too much pride or too little, too much sensibility or too little. And so she's writing in a long tradition that goes back to the, the classical ages, reemerged in the 18th century, and really follows in that tradition much more than the romantic writers that she was contemporary with. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about Austen is that uh, in her stories, she so consistently depicts the act of reading itself as being necessary to character formation and also a clue to the characters uh, of her characters. I mean, I'm thinking of Sir Walter Elliot in Persuasion, who reads nothing except uh, the, his own aristocratic genealogy, you know, or the, um, you know, reckless, clueless Lydia who reads nothing at all, you know, and in contrast, you know, we have Elizabeth Bennet, you know, who is actually chided for reading, but this is, you know, sort of an indication of the, the depth and complexity of her, her character. Why did Austen consider reading essential to character formation? Yeah, this is another aspect of Austen that I find so brilliant because when we're reading her novels and we encounter in the story 
characters who are reading. It, it, it makes sense. There was no television then, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't Facebook. So it's very realistic for her characters to be engaged in reading as a form of entertainment or instruction. She's writing in the age when literacy and books were um, you know, high, widespread. And so there's an element of realism there. But again, this is a quality that really does transcend uh, and translate to our time because reading in Austin is much more than just literal reading. It, it's actually perceptiveness or it's, it's reading well or reading poorly. You know, for example, Mary in uh, Pride and Prejudice reads a lot of books. She's very bookish, but she goes to an extreme that Elizabeth doesn't because Mary actually can't, she can find a lot of uh, knowledge in the books and learn a lot, but she doesn't know how to apply it to her real life. And so while Elizabeth reads, she doesn't mistake reading for real life. She doesn't escape into it in, in a way that causes her to disengage from real life. So she's a virtuous reader, even though she needs to grow and develop as a reader because she so easily misreads the characters around her from, you know, first Mr. Wickham and then Mr. Darcy, whom she misreads. And so even though we may, might not all be as bookish characters or people as, as we have in Austin's world, because we have so many other things to, that, you know, we can spend our time on and competing for our time, we still need to be concerned with the same kind of reading that Austin is. I mean, because there's literal reading, but also metaphorical reading. How are we reading the people around us? How are we reading situations and relationships and character and even reading our own character? Because we know that one of the most famous lines in, in Pride and Prejudice is that moment when Elizabeth says she hardly knew herself, which is part, that, that's her expression of her not really being able to read her own character well until that moment um, of revelation. Now, that is a great point. And that kind of leads naturally to the obvious question, how does one read well? Um, or how did Jane Austen believe one read well? Well, you know, her biography is so interesting because she grew up in a large family, the daughter of an Anglican clergyman that was a devout family. And Austen herself was devout. We have a, a record of that not in, in her letters and in her family's correspondence. And of course, it permeates the pages of her books as well. But her father had a, had a good library and the family would gather in the evenings and and tell stories, read from the books. Austin grew up reading some of the great writers of the 18th century and, and, and earlier Shakespeare, Samuel Richardson, Samuel Johnson, all of these influences are strong in her work. And so she grew up a reader in a reading family, but again, it's that perceptiveness, that kind of metaphorical reading of people that, that marks her skill. You know, there's, there's a famous uh, phrase she wrote in one of her letters about how her novels are like miniatures carved into a tiny piece of ivory because her world is very small and she just focuses on kind of a narrow scope of community and family and in the country. And yet she goes so deeply and so richly into those that into that narrow world um, that it reveals much to us about our own world today. That's the kind of reading that, you know, if we read books well, that actually can help us. It's not a, you know, it's not automatic. It has to be intentional to be perceptive in the way we read people around us and situations around us. We have to pay attention. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about that attention and even the, the complexities and the challenges of it and that, you know, Elizabeth Bennett is portrayed as a, a careful and attentive reader. 
And yet she significantly misjudges Mr. Darcy initially. And her perspective is compelling enough that it's very easy for the reader to be suckered into a misperception as well. And so, you know, throughout the book, it's often the reader as well as the character who have kind of a change in, in perspective. Um, what is Austin doing here with um, you know, this rather humbling, at least to the reader, you know, being toyed with in terms of perspective? Hmm. Well, this is part of what Austin is satirizing. It's gentle satire. She's satirizing our own propensity that most of us have, I certainly do, to, to put a little bit too much confidence in our own perceptiveness, our own um, analysis and interpretation of, of the people and situations around us. And she does this through her narrative technique. She uses a technique referred to as free and direct discourse, which isn't the same thing, you know, we, most of us might remember from school an omniscient narrator or a limited point of view narrator, narrator. This is something in between where Austin allows us to see the perspective of, of one character, then maybe another, and then that omniscient narrator. So we're constantly slipping in and out of the perspective of the narrator or Elizabeth's perspective. Everything in the story is not told from Elizabeth's perspective or the narrator's perspective. So this is a very complicated and tricky way of narrating that, that forces us as readers to figure out whose point of view is this or who's saying this or who's thinking this or is this right and that begins with the famous opening line of, of Pride and Prejudice you know that is a truth universally acknowledged that a well single man with a fortune must be in want of a wife that is not Jane Austen's perspective that is not Elizabeth Bennett's perspective and we, it should not be our perspective as readers, it's Mrs. Bennett's perspective. And Austin is satirizing that, but gently. So Austin sort of takes us along the ride with these different points of view, but she's asking us to test them all along the way in the same way that Elizabeth should have been testing hers all along the way and, and eventually does, but, but doesn't do that quite early enough. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, in many ways, it seems like Austen, through her novels, asks us, the readers, to test not only our perspectives, but in many ways, our reading material in the first place, in that, you know, again, one notices in her characters, she makes judgments, it seems, about what they choose to read. I mean, you think about, you know, again, Mary and her turgid, you know, sermons and philosophy or Mr. Collins and his fondness for Fordyce's sermons, or even um, I think it was poor Captain Bendick, who it was sort of overdosing on romantic poetry. And I believe Anne Elliot and Persuasion recommended you know, prose, where it yes. almost is like Jane Austen considers reading almost as moral medicine. And I, I wanted mm. just to get your, your thoughts on that. She absolutely does. And, I, you know, I love that moment in persuasion is so important because because the character of Anne Elliot, who I think, you know, is is perhaps the one that we're supposed to most solidly sort of 
identify with and and affirm as she is and and, and who she is. And and her recommendation isn't just to never read romantic poetry, but her recommendation is more like, you know what, you've been reading too much romantic poetry, so you need to read some prose, which again goes back to that balance and that moderation, which is the essence of virtue. It's not that one thing is necessarily bad, but it needs to be to be balanced. And we know one of her earlier works, which is just hilarious, Northanger Abbey has that famous line that anyone who doesn't enjoy a novel must be an idiot or something, something along those lines, because novels themselves were actually disdained and even considered suspect in Austen's time. Most novels that were being written were not called novels because because that was sort of a, you know, an insulting term and no respectable author would write in a novel. Well, Austen and her family read novels. They were open about it. They praised them. Jane praised them and wrote her own and called them novels. So she was a pioneer in that respect because she understood that and was prophetic in this way that the novel form, which was new and emerging, could be used in a moral way. And again, that's something I think that translates to our time because we often, you know, we, we encounter different digital forms or different kinds of media, TikTok or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm probably like Jane's contemporaries looking down on TikTok and thinking how corrupt it is. And, but there are probably, there are people out there who are, who are finding a moral use for it. Jane Austen teaches me to not be so time bound or so nostalgic about how things used to be or what used to be respectable that I don't see the potential for newer forms and newer ways because Jane Austen, you know, she was a pioneer in understanding the novel to be its potential for moral instruction. That's fascinating. I'm, there's so much we could unpack there, but one thing I wanted to ask before we, we go there is the fact that, you know, you call Jane Austen not only a moral philosopher, but also a deeply Christian thinker and was curious uh, why you would lay that particular appellation of a deep Christian thinker um, on her. Yeah, and, and especially if we've, you know, we've just watched the movies or read one novel in high school where those things are not that apparent, people can sometimes be surprised about that. Austin's novels are not explicitly Christian. They don't have altar calls. They don't, you know, invoke the name of, of Jesus explicitly the way even some of her contemporaries might have. Austin was a, a member of the Church of England, and she lived during the time when evangelicalism was on the rise, which, as you know, many of us might know, was a more sort of vocal and in-your-face kind of uh, approach to Christianity. I'm an evangelical, so I can say that. And Austin was, you know, she has in her letters, like, she really didn't like the evangelicals at first. She thought they were a little bit too much, although later she did say that after studying them a little bit more and knowing them that maybe we should all be evangelical. But she was, you know, she was that more moderate um, uh, Anglican. And so her novels don't throw the gospel in your face, but it's, it's, they underlie her worldview and her assumptions. She's questioning some things that need to be questioned about the nature and the character of marriage, which of course is in a very important Christian institution, but she's not trying to revolutionize it or overturn it. She's actually trying to make it more Christian by basing it on things like compatibility and, and, companionship and amiability, not just wealth or money and not just 
you know, practical reasons. And so if once we know that her Christian faith was, was genuine and true, and we do because of her letters and her prayers that she wrote, then we can read her novels looking for just understanding that that's the assumption, even if it's not something that she makes ex- explicit. At one point, you described her novels as less of an altar call than a liturgy of ordinary life. In what ways are they a liturgy of ordinary life? Because she focuses on everyday life of everyday people. Now, you know, I think sometimes there's a there's something lost in translation and especially with the films so, so we we today might romanticize kind of the characters in in her novels or in the films because they're so distant from us but the people she was writing about they were they were you know upper middle class primarily now Mr Darcy was very wealthy we know that and Elizabeth was marrying up by marrying him but we also know that this was a family for whom economic realities were serious a great concern and constantly pressing just as they were in Austin's family as you know as as a family led by a minister who didn't have a lot of money and so this is an ordinary life for sort of average everyday people who have their have concerns and Austin's world revolves around gossip and how much we listen to gossip or pass gossip along or our new neighbor or whether we whether it's scandalous to walk two miles and get your dress dirty these are the things that fill most of our everyday lives you know in our 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 modern translation they are just the details of everyday life that affect most of us you know in in the world today again even though the details might be different her world revolves around the everyday ordinary lives of of people who are a lot like you and i Mm -hmm. You know, a little earlier, you were talking about Austin's kind of approach to the novel, her, the fact that she was an early adopter of it, also a developer of it, and, and the fact that in some ways, a, a novel would have been an unusual choice for moral instruction, since it was sort of associated with the lowbrow and the body. And mm-hmm. in some ways she does this as well with her use of irony, and that, you know, we often don't associate irony with moral instruction. We associate earnestness with it. And she is wielding irony with a point as a woman in a novel considered lowbrow to essentially uh, develop points on virtue ethics. What's she doing here? Well, I love this question. So yes, the the novel was developing for a century or two before as largely sort of a lowbrow form of body entertainment and, you know, definitely questionable in in moral character. But there was another strain of of novels and and other literature that was morally instructive and and maybe a little bit too earnest and a little bit too overbearing in its morality. And so Austin's brilliance was to kind of synthesize those two streams and to take the sort of satirical um, bent that goes back uh, a long time and then take that more popular entertaining form of the novel and combine them. And the role that irony plays in, in that is that you actually can't have irony without having a sort of standard or expectation. Because irony, like all comedy, is a deviation from what is expected or the standard or the rule. And so, 
you know, even if we think of a simple example of verbal irony, when there's hail and thunder and a tornado out the window and says, and someone says, oh, what a lovely day. We, you know, we, un we understand that simple level of irony because we understand that it's the opposite. That's the meaning is the opposite of the words. But we wouldn't understand that if we didn't have a sense of, of, you know, what the words mean and what's actually going on outside the window. And so all irony depends on sort of this expectation or this rule or the standard that we know to exist and then to understand that there's a deviation from that and that there's something there's a distance between that and so irony like comedy actually can only thrive in communities or cultures where we have some agreed upon rules and standards that can be deviated from and I think that's why in our culture today most of our comedy tends to be very niche it appeals to a, a small community who gets what's happening because they have a shared sense of expectations and rules. And then someone, another community doesn't share that. And so for them, you know, comedy is going to be consist of something different. So comedy doesn't thrive across our culture today because we don't have many shared sort of rules and standards, but it does thrive in sub-communities. I mean, just ask anyone who's tried to explain why the office is funny to someone who doesn't get it. Wow. Oh, great point. Uh, so we were talking a little bit earlier about reading as character formation and, you know, the importance of reading well, of attentive reading. And by any measure, you have been one of the country's most attentive readers of Jane Austen and have immersed, you know, much of your professional life in, you know, her novels and as well as other English literature. How has reading Jane Austen attentively and well changed you? Wow, that's such a, I first I want to say I'm probably not the most attentive reader of Jane Austen, but I'm the most vocal one, <laughs> perhaps. Um, you know, the funny thing is that the first time that I read Pride and Prejudice in high school, and I was, you know, I always loved English. I read, you know, lo I've loved books since I was, could read when I was five years old. And I loved all the books that we studied in English, except for Pride and Prejudice. I did not like Pride and Prejudice. I thought it was boring. But that's because I didn't get the satire. I didn't get the irony. I just thought, read it on a surface level and thought it was a boring story about boring people doing boring things. But all, <laughs> all of the drama is in that narrative voice and in that subtle humor, sort of gently mocking the errors in, you know, judgment and perceptions um, of everyone and even including Elizabeth. And so I didn't come to understand and then love Pride and Prejudice until college, then grad school and then teaching. So that's one example. But just my lifetime of reading you know, it was actually one of my dearest and oldest friends who said this to me years ago, and, and uh, who she's not a big reader, she's a professor, but in a different discipline. And she's the one who told me, she said, you know, I think that you are really perceptive about people because you've read so many books. And I, and I began to think about that. And I thought, you know, reading books and, and seeing the world through other people's eyes and seeing their judgments and seeing their errors in judgment, spending all of your day, so many days and hours doing that, does translate into real life because I can kind of imagine how someone else is seeing things or imagine how you know they might be wrong or how I might be wrong because 
I, I've seen the world through other people's eyes so many times through the pages of books. And so I, I can't separate who I am and how I think from the countless, countless books that I've spent my life reading. Oh, that's fascinating, Karen. I have to ask, and in some ways this may be a leading question because I am speaking to an English literature professor, but we're at a time when reading in the country is in many ways in an accelerated decline. Mm-hmm. You know, um, according to like all the different surveys and studies, each generation is reading less than the one before. We are comprehending what we read less. Mm-hmm. We read less for pleasure and we read less literature. What does this mean? You know, what are the implications for, you know, both our personal individual character development, but also the character of our country? Yeah. So I think we can look at, you know, I I try hard not to be the curmudgeonly scold pointing the finger at (laughs) the kids today, Um, but it's not just the kids. Um, But all we have to do is look at history and, and look at, you know, before we had widespread literacy, which was brought about in large part by the Protestant Reformation and its emphasis on the centrality of of the word, the centrality of reading the Bible for ourselves rather than having someone else interpret it for us. And of course, I know there was a counter-reformation too, and all of that has contributed to this ability that we have to, to read and to interpret for ourselves. And that has brought about, I mean, that that's a 500 year history that changed the world. And if we are on the other side of that, which I, I think that we are, where we are returning to kind of an image-based culture and not reading or not reading well and, and reading other people's interpretations. I mean, this happens all the time on the, you know, that we, we don't even read the original sources. We read what someone else says about it, whether it's a blog post or a newspaper article. We really are losing, I think, all of the things that are wrapped up in the idea of the logos um, of John 1, 1, the word, the capital W word, the small W words, the ability to think rationally and logically and argue in abstract terms. I definitely recommend that the best sort of introduction to these big ideas in the context of this long history is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, an excellent book that's written for lay readers. It really changed the way I thought about a lot of things early in my academic career. I think I was still in grad school when I read that and, and it's influenced everything that I that I think now about, about literature and images and what we lose when we lose um, the ability to read well. and. We, we dare, you know, if we lose it, it's not like some government came and took this away from us. It's that we did it ourselves. We're doing it ourselves. That's great. We're going to turn to questions from our viewers. And I see there have been quite a few that have come in. Sadly, we're not going to be able to get through all of them, but there's two that I'll combine here that are on a similar theme. So Nancy Austin asks, how does Austin promote virtue through the different types of romantic love and marriage and and Mm. prejudice? Mm. And similarly, David and Lindsay Haynes ask, how does Jane Austen use Darcy to educate us about moral philosophy as a counterpoint to Elizabeth and how she instructs us about the search to finding a true life partner? Okay. All right. Great questions. It's almost like I could have planted these, but I didn't, I promise. Um, so the first question about, about the marriages, um, 
you know, we have a set, of, we have several marriages in Pride and Prejudice, five or six, depending on how you count them uh, among the major and minor characters. And the, the rubric that I like to use when I, when I teach this novel is drawn from Sense and Sensibility. Uh, again, a, another concern of, of Austin's is kind of this balance between um, Sense and Sensibility or reason and passion um, and I think what we see in Pride and Prejudice is we see in Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, and then later in, with Lydia and Wickham, we see a marriage that was drawn, you know, based on youthful passion uh, without any good reason or sense behind it. And so then once that passion, in the case of the elder Bennets, once that passes away, there isn't much of a foundation there. And then we see in the marriage of Collins and Charlotte, um, it's based purely on reason. There isn't passion there. Collins is looking for a wife, anyone will do. Um, and um, and Charlotte, you know, she, she just, she wants to be married and she doesn't have many prospects. And so she marries him. And I, I love this part of the novel. You know, Elizabeth is disappointed in her friend Charlotte for marrying Collins. Um, but when she visits her and realizes that Charlotte is decently happy, Elizabeth, what she has to realize is that even though Charlotte is her best friend, they aren't the same people. And what is a good choice for Charlotte doesn't mean that would have been a good choice for Elizabeth. We are different people. And, and that's another area in which Elizabeth has to grow. Uh, and then we have, you know, we have Elizabeth and um, Darcy who, who have a marriage that is very reasonable. It makes sense in their society. It makes great sense for Elizabeth, but it's also, um, it's based on passion. That's the two very much love one another and attracted to one another. Uh, and I, again, that's an example of Austin's use of virtue. She sees marriage as something that needs to balance these these things um, because it, it shouldn't be just about um, a reasonable match or just about passion, but about both. Mm -hmm. um, and the question about Darcy, I mean, I, it's just so brilliant because we're, because Austin as a narrator leads us into this distaste of Darcy and we make all the wrong judgments against him, just like Elizabeth does. And then we find out, you know, the truth, we find out the rest of the story um, in the words of uh, Paul Harvey. Um, and Darcy, so we, we understand that, um, that Darcy, Darcy is proud and he is hesitant to marry, he's embarrassed by Elizabeth's family and he thinks it would be a bad match for him to be connected to such a silly, ridiculous family. And the thing is, he's actually right. It, that's not completely wrong for him to think that. Mm -hmm. So he has to, but he has to overcome that in favor of, of, of other things. Um, and so we have to sort of, I think what happens to us as readers is we come to understand um, Darcy's, you know, his, his, his mistaken point of view, but also how he that was a right concern for him to have because you really do marry into a family. And any of you out there who don't know that already, let this be sort of the, a free lesson that goes along with the lecture today. You do marry a family. So if you're, you know, out there and you're, you're, you're thinking of marrying someone, do remember that you marry the family as well. Darcy was right about that. And so I think we have to sort of learn to, in reading it, um, to see Darcy's point of view and where his concerns were legitimate as well but he he grows he grows too and he grows to realize that he doesn't have to um identify himself completely with this family that you know one shouldn't probably <laughs>
That's great. So we have an interesting question from Lisey Barnett. And Lisey says, uh, being the daughter of a clergyman, Austin has a clergyman in all but one of her books. Her portrayals of the clergy are often not flattering. What does this say about her view of the church and about her faith? Yeah, I hear that a lot. And actually, uh, you know, I think because Collins gets so much attention, um, and he's certainly a satirical uh, portrayal of a clergyman. Um, but we have in Sense and Sensibility, we have Edward um, Ferrers, who is who genuinely wants to be a clergyman, and, and he's being pre prevented from being one by his mother and eventually is able to be one. And we have um, uh, I think Mr. Knightley, there's, a, there's, a, there's another one. So there are actually some positive portrayals of clergymen in the novels. It's just the comical ones get all the attention. So I think what we can say from that, even with the comical ones, is Austin is doing through the clergyman that she depicts satirically, what she's doing with all satire. She is upholding a norm and saying, this is how it this is how it should not be, and that implies how it should be. So she is rightly judging those clergymen who are in it for the money or in it because they couldn't find any other work to do, um, who are corrupt or lazy. Um, Austin satirizes those kinds of clergymen because she believes in uh, she believes in the institution of the church, and she believe her father was a good clergyman, um, and. And so, so we know that she had a model to look up to and that we know that she knows what it looks like when it's not done well. That's great. Harvey Solganic asks, in this time of questions on gender identity, many men view Jane Austen's works as chick flicks. How would you encourage males to read Austen from their perspective? And then Michelle Crouch responding to that and asking a question of her own says, along the same lines, how do you understand Jane Austen to provide an engaging understanding of the besetting sins peculiar to men and women in a way that still resonates with our cultural situation? So I would, I, I hesitate to say this, but, but I can't help myself. I think in a lot of ways, the movies have ruined Jane Austen. Um, you know, Many people's exposure to Jane Austen is just through the films. And I, and I say this, so, so many men have been put off of Jane Austen because they, the films, except for the Sense and Sensibility one, that is actually an excellent adaptation. The others are, are fine. Uh, some of the others are fine, um, but the new Emma is really good. <laughs> um, I keep um, correcting myself here, but um, the, the films have given, as a body, have given the view that these are just romantic stories and they are not. So I think any man who is not interested in that or woman <laughs> who's not interested in that just needs to read the books and read them with the understanding that this is satire and you're not supposed to just sort of absorb the, the narrative perspective as though it's earnest and straightforward. It's satire. If you think something's funny, it, it, it most likely is, so laugh. Um, and in terms of the besetting sins um, of men and women, um, I think that's, again, one of the great gifts that Austin can offer us because um, those relationships between the sexes and her world are, are, are subtle enough that I think they translate well to our time today because there are some things and some dynamics that really in many ways haven't changed. Um, and so her, her portrayals are not you know, always, some of the characters are, but the main characters are not ever over the top. 
um, especially Persuasion is a novel where um, Anne Elliot, uh, you know, a more mature woman who's single and does desire to get married, but has, you know, kind of settled on the fact that she probably won't. Um, she is, you know, like independent and mature. She gives advice to the men in her lives. The men are, can be just as needy as the women. It, that, that is a very rich novel that I think um, um, displays both sort of the equality of the sexes, but also um, the differences and also transcends the stereotypes. Right. Karen, this has been great fun. Uh, there are so many more questions awaiting, but uh, time is running out. And as promised, Karen, the last word is yours. So I wanted to read someone just asked me to show this again, Praying with Jane. It's a devotional based on Jane's prayers by Rachel Dodge. And I was going to read from a couple of lines from one of Jane Austen's prayers that she wrote. This is from the middle of the prayer. Give us grace to endeavor after a truly Christian spirit to seek to sustain that temper of forbearance and patience of which our blessed savior has set us the highest example and which while it prepares us for the spiritual happiness of the life to come will secure to us the best enjoyment of what this world can give. Incline us, O God, to think humbly of ourselves, to be severe only in the examination of our own conduct, to consider our fellow creatures with kindness, and to judge of all they say and do with that charity which we would desire from men ourselves. Karen, thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.